2022's news has been dominated by the NATO-Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, We have all struggled throughout 2022 to try to make sense of uh, what's been going on and to uh, work through our own personal sense of shock and dismay at the tragedy of war unfolding in Ukraine. What has really been going on? What is the deeper story behind the news headlines? That is what I'm looking at in today's Burning Archive podcast and YouTube video. That's right, the very first Burning Archive video podcast. So today we're talking about the story so far with the Russia Ukraine war, which I call the NATO-Russia-Ukraine war because, let's face it, NATO is an active participant in supplying Ukraine and this war has very much been about NATO as well. Just so we're all clear on that, the NATO-Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, I am Jeff Rich and this is the Burning Archive podcast and the Burning Archive YouTube channel. And uh, as I said before, if you haven't dropped by here before or you haven't listened to my uh, podcast before, this is the very first time I'm recording a video podcast of the Burning Archive uh, uh, podcast YouTube channel. Uh, And so you can also see if you're watching on either the video stream or the um, uh, (laughs) the um, or on the uh, YouTube that, uh, yes, I am wearing some Burning Archive podcast merch, the Burning Archive uh, podcast T-shirt, not yet available on the shop but no doubt shortly to be available uh, if I can work out how to do that. Uh, And uh, this podcast is the 12th in my uh, podcast, uh, 12th in my series on the Black Legend of Russian History, uh, a series I began in June. It is the 12th in my series on the Black Uh, legend of Russian history that's been exploring how distorted perceptions of Russia and Russian history uh, have dominated so much of the uh, imagery and the stories and the history of uh, and the the policy, the geostrategy towards Russia uh, or about Russia in uh, the West uh, and especially over the last 50 or so years, Uh, and especially in the Anglo-American world, which to some degree is the great uh, competitor power to uh, Russia as uh, a major state. And my year on the pod has really been dominated by discussion of the Russia-Ukraine war. I've uh, either directly or indirectly through my series on the the Black Legend of Russian History. I did a pro- about about six to eight episodes specifically addressing the Russia-Ukraine war uh, early in the first six months or so of the year. 
and including some immediate responses as events unfolded in late February. And then uh, from June, I did this long series on the black legend of Russian history, which sort of told the story of Russia backwards from Gorbachev, etc., through to uh, the Russian Revolution and the 19th century, the War of 1812, Catherine the Great, uh, the Time of Troubles, Ivan the Terrible, the Mongol uh, exchange the important period of uh, Mongol Empire uh, control of Russia and then finally the origin stories of Kiev, Russia and of Ukraine, Russia and uh, Belarus in uh, Kiev and Rus. And then this final uh, installment in the series on the black legend of Russian history uh, really tries to sort of uh, look, I guess, specifically at this latest phase of Russian history of its war with Ukraine or in Ukraine uh, with NATO and America and how, in a way, the distorted images of uh, Russian history and Russia itself have uh, been one of the major causes. This black legend of Russian history has in fact helped cause this uh, war in uh, Eurasia uh, by uh, miscalculations, uh, particularly in the West, and um, a, a refusal to uh, <laughs> accept the overtures of peace that Russia and attempts to work collaboratively as an equal partner with the West that Russia has um, offered over the last 30 years. So in one of my very first podcasts on the black legend of Russian history, I framed this, this conflict as, if you like, the last phase in a hundred years war between the Anglo-American powers and Russia a hundred years cold war between Russia and America, if you like. Uh, because in a way, the Cold War never really um, uh, came to a negotiated peace. And that absence of a negotiated peace, of uh, an, uh, uh, a set of arrangements acceptable to all parties, uh, around the security of Europe after the Cold War um, it has created the instability and the uh, unresolved grievances that have contributed to this war in Ukraine, the co continued eastward push of NATO, contrary, contrary to promises made to Russia in the 1980s, uh, late 1980s, uh, and the the rather explicit and active attempts to destabilize and break up Russia from uh, the American uh, sort of um, power elite, uh, military power elite, uh, military security state power elite, has uh, really caused this war as much as anything. And uh, this view that 
the distorted images of history uh, have helped drive this war. It's not just my view, but it's also a view expressed recently by Colonel Douglas McGregor, a, a former, um, you know, a commander in battle, as well as a, uh, a government advisor and military historian, who has said that as much as anything, some of the uh, distorted images of Russians and Russia that are held by the political and military elite in America have helped cause this war. So by getting a, a better understanding of Russia, better understanding of Russian history, as well as a better understanding of Ukraine and Ukrainian history, we can perhaps provide uh, a sound basis for both understanding what's going on in the world, which is perhaps the limit of uh, your and my, uh, you know, responsibility. Uh, with this war, we are not going to be able to control events, but we can at least control our interpretation of events. And so uh, what I want to offer in this video, in this set of videos, and in this uh, these episodes of the podcast, is a fresh interpretation of the Russia-Ukraine, NATO-Russia-Ukraine war, uh, and uh, a framing of the whole, the whole story arc so far, the whole series of events so far. And then an assessment of how, how the conflict across four key dimensions of the military war, the economic war, the diplomatic war, and the cultural information war uh, are playing out now. Um, uh, who has the advantage, so to speak, in each of those wars? And what is the impact of those conflicts against those four dimensions on the shaping of a new multipolar world? And then finally, uh, I want to have a bit of a broader reframing of this war. Do we see it? Uh, do we describe this war as the start of World War Three, or given that uh, you know World War Three has trended on Twitter um, or YouTube multiple times this year uh, through 2022, uh, with perhaps some reasonable grounds of concern given that there has been talk of uh, the use of nuclear weapons by both America and Russia and especially by Ukraine and uh, also uh, uh, look I guess re revisit my earlier hypothesis that this is the last phase of a hundred year cold war between Russia and America uh, and uh, sort of a and bringing to a head of the uh, growing conflicts within the war, the growing uh, um, dissatisfaction across the world with American dominance of international institutions and international rules. It's a revolt against the American rules-based order. Okay, so that's what I'm going to cover today, and in this first sort of segment or video or in the first segment I'm going to look at the sort of narrative of the events of the year uh, and to try to get a bit of a stock take for 
Well, where are we? Because we're certainly on the cusp. On the cusp of something quite significant uh, in the military war. Uh, it sounds very much like today on New Year's Eve uh, 2022 that Bakhmut is going to fall to Russians very soon. And there's uh, very, very significant um, preparations going on in eastern Ukraine for further uh, offensives. Um, and then in the second one, I'm going to look at the dimensions of the war, those four factors of military, cultural, diplomatic and economic, uh, where that uh, this war has been fought over and how that's affecting the emerging new world order. And then finally, in the third segment, I'm going to look at the reframed narratives. OK, so let's get into segment number one which is about the narrative of the war so far. With, uh, with the stories of the Russia-Ukraine war, obviously it's dominated news coverage over the last uh, year, and, um, and uh, that's terrific. It's probably faded a little bit in the headlines over the last, I don't know, six months or so. Uh, but it's certainly a dominant story. And, and often with news stories, you sort of uh, follow them day to day. Uh, there's a lot of shock and awe, I guess, a lot of shock and horror uh, with the um, images of bombings and other uh, terrible events in the battlefield. And uh, as they say, the first victim of first casualty of war is truth and on all sides there has been a certain level of propaganda uh, and I think it's probably fair to say there has been within uh, the West uh, and I'm speaking from Australia within the West and certainly within the Australian media environment there has been a pretty uh, monochrome and orchestrated domination of one uh, of of the reporting of the Ukraine war from uh, I guess really the Ukrainian side uh, and I uh, from day one of this war have really tried to look at it from all sides and um, and I think that will come through in my narrative of events um, but um, I think uh, in most sort of conventional accounts of the uh, war so far uh, and uh, uh, Wikipedia, I guess, is a pretty good source for uh, looking at conventional accounts of the war, you uh, really get three key uh, phases of the war. Uh, and they are from uh, the 24th of February to the 7th of April when the initial invasion of Ukraine uh, commences. Initially, it seemed a little bit like it was going to be a blitzkrieg campaign. Uh, and then it stalled. And I guess the standard of story in uh, mainstream media accounts has been, you know, Russia... Um, underestimated its enemy and proved its incompetence and so didn't quite work out as successfully as uh, <laughs> they would have hoped. 
Um, but uh, and then in phase two, uh, there is what the 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 war concentrates on what the Wikipedia or mainstream media describe as southeastern front, southeast of Ukraine, which uh, is really. The key areas, Donbass and Lugansk, or Lugansk, Lugansk that um, uh, this war was fought over. They were the two uh, republics uh, that sought independence and have since been incorporated together with Kherson and Zaporozhia into uh, the Russian Federation. In this uh, conflict uh, around um, cities of Mariupol and uh, uh, and a, a wide, long, sort of crescent sort of front um, in uh, southeastern Ukraine uh, was uh, uh, has been long and protracted, um, not super intense, but it's also been uh, a war which has. Uh, been um, conducted in areas where there have been deep fortifications and defensive structures set up over the previous eight years in the war in Donbass. And then the final mainstream phase is really uh, what it described as the Ukrainian counter-offensives from late August until the present. And these include counter-offensives around in the Kharkiv region and also counter-offensives in the Kherson region uh, towards uh, the sort of south, a little bit north of Crimea. And if you want, you can also check out a time-lapse map of the... Um, uh, the back and forward movement of troops at the Institute of the Study of War, uh, uh, which is very much an American neoconservative kind of think tank. I think it's run by uh, the Kagan uh, family, who uh, who who's, uh, include the Secretary of uh, Deputy Secretary of State Victoria. Newland, who's married to Robert Kagan, uh, and it takes a pretty, you know, you know, uh, pro-Ukrainian, <laughs> pro-American uh, view of the war. But nonetheless, they have a quite uh, nifty little time-lapse map that shows um, the war, and uh, I've, I'll sort of display that time-lapse map for people viewing the channel, uh, viewing this video podcast, not just listening on audio. Um, but I would also uh, probably construct the phases of the war a little bit differently. And this also goes to kind of making sense of the war, both in terms of, uh, you know, the Ukrainian side, uh, but also what was being intended from the Russian side and the um, changing uh, interpretations, I guess, that have emerged over time about how the war has actually been conducted. So my narrative account of the war, and if you're watching on YouTube or uh, 
or, or on a video podcast uh, platform on Spotify, then uh, you will see uh, on screen uh, my um, uh, quick outline of the seven phases of the war so far. And I think we're about to go into an eighth phase. So uh, phase one is uh, really an important preliminary phase that is often forgotten about in the discussion of this uh, war in uh, the Western mainstream media and uh, that is the period between 2014 and 2022 where there is a conflict um, within Ukraine, military conflict within Ukraine, uh, which uh, I guess it hasn't really been called this, but I, we, I, we could summarise as a Ukrainian civil war. Uh, and uh, this uh, period was kicked off by the uh, Maidan um, revolution in the Ukraine, or revolution of dignity in the Ukrainian account, or the um, uh, coup d'etat organised by the United States of America in the Russian account that led to the replacement of uh, um, a, the, uh, the, the previously elected government of Ukraine by a government with significant extreme nationalist forces in it um, uh, and one which was taking quite an aggressive attitude towards uh, the use of Russian language um, and various civil rights for pro-Russian groups. And this led to uh, a series of, um, uh, I guess, uh, decisions in the Donetsk region and the Lugansk region and in Crimea. Uh, it led to the, the sort of... Um, uh, Russian entry into Crimea and the referendum in Crimea to join the Russian Federation and also um, it, the, the, the separatist uh, groups in Donetsk and Lugansk uh, and some of the other regions also expressed a desire to either be independent republics or to join Russia. And, you know, um, for eight years, there have been uh, the city of Donetsk in the Donbass has been shelled by the Ukrainian <laughs> military and Ukrainian government. Uh, and there's been, a, you know, ongoing, uh, effectively, civil war in which tens of thousands of people have died and also in which very significant defensive fortifications have been constructed. Um, you know, trenches, pillboxes, all that sort of thing. And the, uh, it's a very important preliminary phase to this war because much of the fighting that is going on now is going on through this terrain, uh, and it partly accounts for the slow, patient pace of the war because it's actually being conducted through quite difficult defensive terrain. So that's phase one. And then phase two is, I guess, the period from really about mid-2021 uh, to 
February uh, 2022, where Russia was making multiple attempts to uh, secure a uh, treaty. Uh, there was actually a text of a treaty um, released uh, in November or December 2021 uh, with America, or with NATO, if you like, to uh, establish agreed security arrangements uh, in Europe uh, uh, based on principles of international law and indivisible security and the understanding that Russia had at the end of the Cold War that NATO would not expand one inch eastward <laughs> after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, and this uh, attempt at uh, uh, securing a fundamental uh, resolution of the issues and interests that Russia had uh, proved unsuccessful and ultimately through uh, the disregard for this um, and and I guess a key key issue, a key preliminary issue to this war was about Ukraine joining NATO, which was clearly unacceptable. I mean, uh, that would be, uh, that's, that's quite a lot further than one inch eastward. Um, and uh, Ukraine at that point had, I think, the second largest army in uh, Europe. Uh, probably Russia had the largest army in Europe. <laughs> Uh, and so it would be a very significant aggressive move. And throughout that period between June and February, uh, June 2021 and February 2022, there were, you know, there was a summit between Biden and Putin and there were discussions um, uh, uh, around this treaty. The Russians sought a formal response from America but never really got a proper formal response from America and sort of China also made a few comments around uh, agreement with the key principles set out in uh, the Russian proposals and if you like it was the last ditch attempt by Vladimir Putin in his attempt to uh, take NATO and uh, the American partners at their words that they wanted to collaborate around peace rather than pursue an aggressive policy towards Russia. And um, I think in it was January or February in uh, 2022 that uh, the Munich uh, Security Conference was held. And at that Munich Security Conference, Vladimir or Volodymyr Zelensky called for Ukraine to have nuclear weapons. Uh, and um, the Vice President of the United States um, did not uh, did not um, say perhaps that would not be such a good thing, Vladimir, uh, at that security conference, nor did the Foreign Minister of Australia, even though that would have been... Uh, a pretty aggressive move for Ukraine to <laughs> have nuclear weapons uh, pointed directly at Moscow, at, at Russia. Uh, so, unfortunately, all those negotiations for a new European security failed, 
and um and you know there was an awful lot of shadow boxing in that period there were you know americans reported about the build-up of forces and there were expectations of invasions and uh i i myself was un uh, i was uh i did not expect this operation uh this military invasion to happen uh, but clearly uh, Russia calculated that enough was enough and that uh, talk was cheap and was achieving nothing and that it needed to actually take action to uh, secure uh, uh, secure um, its uh, borders and uh, at Reportedly at that time, there was also a very significant build-up of Ukrainian forces in that uh, area of the Donbass. And um, uh, uh, there was some expectation that there would be, if you like, um, uh, some aggressive moves from Ukraine towards the separatist republics. But in February... Uh, uh, 2022, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, I guess, formally declared their independence as independent states. Russia accepted that and then intervened in this special military operation. And then we see uh, what uh, I describe as the third phase of the war which is occurs really between uh, late February and early April where we see a multi-front invasion of Ukraine so in this period uh, and the video um, viewers will be able to see on the map from the Institute for the Study of War the um, uh, entry of Russian forces uh, and like four or five points across uh, Russia, there's clearly the the controlled areas around um, the Donbass, but they also enter into the Kharkiv region, which is just north of the Donbass, and they also enter in the uh, the Sumy uh, Chernigov uh, regions. And they also enter north of Kiev. In fact, they, Kiev, which is quite uh, sort of north and central in uh, in uh, Ukraine, reasonably close to the Belarus border, Russian forces come in to north and, if you like, make a sort of a lightning uh, strike towards uh, Kiev. Uh, and then they then also move uh north from Crimea into the south part of uh, Russia towards uh, Kherson and towards Odessa and towards Mariupol on the Azov Sea. Uh, and um, uh, these movements are all quite quick and in fact there's a, there's a, a kind of a, a lightning operation towards Kiev where the Russian forces um, sort of attempt, well, do in fact take control of the main airport at Kiev. And the general interpretation of this uh, set of events 
is that Russia was uh, preparing for multiple scenarios. One was a rapid collapse of the uh, Kiev regime in response to this significant pressure. The third, the second, sorry, was a you know a conflict uh, focused on Ukraine. Uh, where the expectation was that they would be able to uh, neutralise Ukraine uh, and have them uh, negotiate a peace reasonably quickly uh, with a focus on just uh, accepting the loss of the the Donbass region and potentially some of the areas along the Azov uh, and Black Sea coast. And the third scenario was a more protracted war with uh, Ukraine where uh, there would be continued and significant uh, support from the West. And um, perhaps the events in this first phase of the war uh, suggest that rather than Russia massively miscalculating it, it uh, tried, I guess, the lowest cost option, which was the rapid strike, uh, to, to to remove the the regime uh, of of uh, the, the pro-American Zelensky sort of regime, uh, and to sort of see a rapid collapse of that regime and uh, control of the territories. Um, but there was resistance to that. Uh, the celebrated Ukrainian resistance to uh, the Russian attacks, and the war went on. But um, over the next, uh, but quite quickly also, there were uh, negotiations set up. In fact, uh, within those first couple of weeks, Volodymyr Zelensky signalled willingness to negotiate, and various negotiating teams were uh, established between uh, Ukraine and Russia. There were several meetings in Belarus, in one of which a, a, a Ukrainian negotiator uh, was shot and executed by his side for uh, because he was seen to be, um, he was believed to be providing secrets, presumably to the Russians, being disloyal. Uh, and those negotiations continued, including through mediation of Turkey, a series of meetings in Turkey. In mid to late March, there were a series of negotiations between Ukraine and Russian negotiators uh, um, hosted by Turkey. And uh, those negotiations appeared to be bearing some fruit. Uh, at that point, Russia controlled a very significant part of the territory of uh, Ukraine. There'd been a massive um, flow of people out of Ukraine, both to the west through Poland and to the EU, like I think five, ten million uh, refugees in total. Uh, as well as to the east, towards Russia as well. Significant numbers uh, left all the major cities and these areas were abandoned uh, to some degree um, by many people. But uh, those negotiations, there was actually a document from Russia 
which proposed uh, terms of some kind. And there seemed to be signs that Ukraine was close to negotiating an agreement. But then in uh, late March, there was uh, reports of both um, uh, attacks on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant and the event in Bucha, in the outer suburbs of Russia, uh, of, of uh, Ukraine. Uh, in the context of Russian forces withdrawing from around uh, Kiev uh, as, I guess, a sign of goodwill towards uh, Ukraine, there was sort of withdrawal from the immediate area around Kiev and of sort of focusing of the forces towards the southeast and the Donbass. Um, and this um, was a reported uh, kind of war crime sort of event in Bucha. Uh, this event sort of, uh, I guess, put steel in the spine of the Ukrainian government in terms of uh, deciding to fight uh, longer term against Russia. And uh, there have been some reports that in fact, uh, a visit from Boris Johnson, the then British Prime Minister, to Kiev, uh, a meeting with Zelensky uh, was, um, and I think this has been confirmed from multiple sides, uh, was a key event in persuading Ukraine not to continue with the peace negotiations and to fight in a more determined way. And then we move into the next phase of the war. So uh, in this next phase, uh, really from April to August, the uh, initial hopes hopes of a um, negotiated peace. So at this point, I guess Russia has lost its its it has its initial plan. If indeed this was the plan, no one really knows. But there have been some excellent uh, assessments or arguments that this that they prepared for free contingencies, I guess. So the initial contingency of a quick knockout of the regime in response to, like, that multi-front invasion uh, proved unsuccessful. The, uh, uh, the containment of the uh, fight between Russia... And Russia had only deployed, I think, let's say, like 150,000... Uh, soldiers uh, to this uh, combat and the Ukrainian army was significantly larger than that uh, and was also mobilising so they, they didn't really deploy a uh, large enough military force to uh, um, take over a country the size of Ukraine or a country with an army uh, uh, the size of Ukraine, like many uh, military commentators like Douglas McGregor or General Bakshi from India have commented that the general um, ratio of offensive to defensive forces should be three to one. Um, Russia would have needed somewhere in the order of a million uh, or 1.5 million soldiers to have a ratio of three to one to uh, fight Ukraine in this period, so it 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 
it it all it very much had the flavour of a special military operation rather than an all-out war. And um, throughout this period, there was this sort of cognitive dissonance, I guess, in the uh, interpretation of what was going on in the war because Russia was clearly going in very softly. It was not really going all out. Um, there were some initial bombings, but they were sort of held back. They sort of withdrew from around Kiev, uh, and they were not deploying huge soldiers. They certainly had some setbacks in that early rapid advance, uh, but they were sort of uh, falling back, and there was a concentration uh, of the forces, um, and it perhaps encouraged a sense that Ukraine was winning the war. There was a heroic resistance. The Russians were seen as uh, incompetent. But perhaps rather what was happening was option A had been tried of the quick knockout. Option B of the limited war with the uh, plan to um, uh, negotiate a peace with Ukraine uh, failed and then we get into this transitional phase where there is a significant uh, concentration of forces in the Donbass and the Black Sea coast uh, uh, and this phase really operates between sort of April and August uh, late August 2022 and over this period of time uh, the Russian forces are fighting with the, uh, uh, the the two breakaway republics, the Donetsk and Lugansk regions, the sort of militias, uh, and uh, Ukraine is building up its forces and uh, um, making constant requests to for foreign mercenaries from Western countries and also. Uh, additional military supplies and more powerful weapons and missiles, etc., from the West. Uh, but the Russian forces are concentrating around uh, the fight for the city, port city of Mariupol on the Azov Sea and uh, the, uh, the Donbass region. And the, in this period, Russia completely liberates the Lugansk region and so most of the remaining fighting uh, is in that area of the uh, Donetsk region. Uh, there's constant shelling of Donetsk and there's battles back and forward around places like Severodonetsk uh, and Bakhmut uh, towards the key um, there's a sort of slow Russian advance, I guess, towards uh, to to try to liberate the area of the Donetsk area. Um, in May, they the uh, Mariupol is um, uh, the the Ukrainian forces are uh, 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 defeated in Mariupol, and there's a siege in the Azovstal steel plant which is like a, you know, like a massive concrete bunker, uh, um, uh, which lasts quite a while, but ultimately is uh, freed. 
uh, of uh, the Ukrainian forces, and that city has, has, has remained under Russian control since. Then from August to October, there is the phase um, that uh, we can describe as the period of Ukrainian counter-offensives in Kharkiv, and the Kharkiv region and the Kherson region. Again, this needs to be understood in the context of Russia having, at this point, really deployed limited military force towards the war, uh, and it was fighting a war on quite a wide front uh, with limited uh, pieces and, and was significantly outnumbered in a number of these areas. Uh, and was, if you like, moving soldiers back and forward between key sort of positions around this long crescent uh, in uh, in uh, in southeastern Ukraine. So in uh, this period, effectively, the Russian uh, forces start to with draw from uh, around Kharkiv and there's a, 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 a Ukrainian advance into that area and then there's also a significant advance of Ukrainian forces towards the city of Kherson uh, in the sort of uh, uh, south of Ukraine uh, just above the Crimea uh, region there which you can see on the map if you're watching on YouTube. And um, again, uh, there's a significant decision uh, on both parts for the Russians to effectively make strategic withdrawals of the, their forces in this area. And this is certainly a propaganda victory for Ukraine. Uh, they are, uh, are seen to have successful counter-offensives around Kharkiv and around Kherson. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky enters the city of uh, Kherson um, uh, as, as um, following its liberation from the Ukrainian uh, point of view. And, uh, the, um, uh, and there's some level of political embarrassment for Russia, but it is also occurring at the same time as Russia is reorganizing its military forces themselves. And so we really enter phase six of the uh, war, uh, which is really from like late September, early, Oct um, early October, where uh, uh, Russia finally, I guess, abandons its more limited aims of the war. Um, it formally incorporates the uh, four regions of uh, Ukraine that it had um, full or partial control of, the two republics that had broken away as separate states in February, that is Donetsk and Lugansk, or the Donbass region, as well as the regions of Kherson around the city of Kherson and Zaporozhia in, or Zaporozhia in the south of uh, Ukraine. 
so those four states were sort of uh, legally um, inducted into the Russian Federation uh, following referendums that were held despite shelling and all that sort of thing in, uh, I think it was in September. And at the same time, uh, there is a significant change in, uh, I guess, both strategy and leadership and organisation of the Russian war effort. There is a mobilisation ordered, uh, free, I think 300,000 uh, Russian, um, uh, Russians were conscripted or mobilised. Uh, most of them, I think, had prior military experience of some kind. And uh, a new general um, was put in operational or, or command of the entire theatre of the Ukrainian war. General Surovivan is put in charge of the Russian war effort. And there is a significant change in approach, I guess, for a start. Uh, Russia is now assembling an army of half a million, I guess, soldiers rather than 150,000 soldiers. And those forces are also being concentrated around those key southeast areas. There's the withdrawal from the hard-to-control city of Kherson to more defensible lines uh, east of the Dnieper River. And there is a significant uh, uh, increase in, uh, uh, or, or and there's a um, there's various economic and other sort of activities that are going on to mobilise the Russian war effort. Uh, and of course, in late September, also the uh, sabotage uh, terrorist maybe state actor terrorist, maybe attack on the Nord Stream gas pipelines uh, occurs and that that uh, has um, that that uh, breaks any last resistance from Germany to try to negotiate a better arrangement with um, uh, Russia and is a significant uh, escalation I guess in the Effort, there's, I guess, a widespread view that um, NATO, in some way or other, America, Britain, uh, were likely uh, the um, responsible parties on the attack on Nord Stream 2, although, of course, um, we perhaps will only find that out in 30 years' time for sure. And there's also the... Uh, 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 bombing terrorist attack um, which Ukraine uh, was and some people allege the British uh, security forces were also behind uh, the attack on the the Kerch Bridge in uh, Crimea so these are significant escalations and Russia is uh, increasingly convinced that any attempts to sort of negotiate a solution is unlikely to be successful and so uh, from then we really enter, I guess, what I'd describe as phase seven of the war, which is the, I guess, intensification of the Russian uh, effort to demilitarize Ukraine, uh, where um, 
and its final abandonment of any uh, hopes of peace negotiations with the West. Uh, there's a major bombing um, uh, if it's targeting uh, Ukrainian uh, electricity infrastructure, transport infrastructure, and uh, more recently uh, air defence uh, systems in Ukraine and this has been going on now for several weeks and is leading to the very significant degrading of the um, you know water electricity um, basic sort of basic uh, urban infrastructure in the large cities of Ukraine it will have a significant impact on both the military operations because uh, I mean, there have been confirmed reports that Ukraine is now deploying steam railways to transport things around uh, in the absence of electrified railway. Uh, and it's also going to have a significant effect uh, impact on the civilian population. Uh, and all this time, of course, the Russian Russian. Uh, uh, mobilised forces, the 300,000 mobilised forces are being trained and readied for what is presumably going to be a significant offensive um, uh, uh, at some point uh, in January or February. Uh, perhaps uh, there have been even some reports that it has already begun. Uh, but also, I should comment that in phase six and phase seven, a very key, fundamental, core core battle has been occurring, and that is the battle for Bakhmut uh, in uh, in the Donbass. And this is a key city, one of the the sort of the second last sort of defensive um, uh, uh, nodal points in that sort of fortification of the Donbass that occurred in the eight years between 2014 and 2022. And as we're speaking today, the, there's increasing reports of Russian entry into the city of uh, Bakhmut and a very large number of Ukrainian forces have been going on, have been... Um, there have been enormous, enormous Ukrainian casualties. So in phase five, six and seven, although there have been Ukrainian counter-offensives throughout this period of time, many that has also led to uh, enormous Ukrainian casualties. And so some people describe uh, the city of Bakhmut as a fire trap for uh, Ukraine where... Um, the uh, soldiers come in and they uh, are subjected to significant fire, both artillery and direct fire. Uh, and um, there's sort of a lot of hard into nothing for winning. Uh, there's a desire from Ukraine to defend it to the death. Um, but unfortunately for many, it is leading to their death and not the ultimate defence of Bakhmut. So that takes us to where we are today on uh, New Year's Eve where um, there are regular air raid alerts 
every day in uh, Ukraine, uh, where the economy is in a desperate state, where a large proportion of the population has left the country, where uh, Russia has assembled a very major military force uh, on all sides, and where, um, nonetheless, um, the Ukrainian uh, regime is continuing calls for escalation and you know more weapons from the West, more soldiers from the West, more uh, military intervention from the West. It appears, uh, it appears to me at least, that the uh, Ukrainian effort uh, is uh, doomed to fail. And at some point or other, the uh, Russian army will put an end to the war. Um, but I think one of the learnings of this war for me is that there's this, uh, I guess, this psychological pressure to believe it will happen a lot more quickly than, in fact, it will. Uh, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe. Uh, the... Um, it's densely populated, it, there's been enormous defensive fortifications and $100 billion of American military effort has gone into uh, its defence. So it may take longer than one would hope, um, but it certainly does seem likely to ultimately lead to a collapse in response to the Russian offensive. And then I guess the West will be presented with the question of what will it do when Russia wins this war in Ukraine? And uh, which I actually did a, a, a podcast on earlier in the year, in I think in June maybe, uh, maybe even May or April. Um, but it is increasingly becoming uh, an important question to ask. And I think I'll uh, address that question more in the second segment of this uh, review of the Russia-Ukraine war on uh, how the war is playing out, what, how, who is winning the war against these four key dimensions. Uh, but that's where I'm going to end the first video on the narrative of the war. So do subscribe and like this video if you've enjoyed it and uh, I hope to see you soon and, and do check out the next video which uh, is linked below.